Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Brian Roth, He's a Michael Hooker Distinguished Professor, Pharmacology Director, and NIMH Psychoactive Drug Screening Program Participant. Uh, this is at the Eshelman Medical School. And uh, the main subject of this is, uh, is there a possibility of the effect of psychedelics without the trip? Could there be healing magic for mental health? So, Brian, thank you for coming. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Um, just a correction, it's the University of North Carolina School of Medicine, not the not the, not the Eshelman School. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry, I had that in the bio. So the North yeah, Carolina no, it's, School it's of Medicine. Yeah. yeah, it's perfectly fine. Okay. Well, if you would tell me, um, how did you get an interest in psychedelics and uh, what kind of research are you working on today? Well, I've been interested in psychedelics and psychoactive drugs, you know, pretty much all my life. I first got, inter- I would say, got interested in this area when I was basically five or six, when my mom was first diagnosed with schizophrenia and was treated with antipsychotic med- medications. And, you know, that had a, had a really profound impact on me and sort of galvanized my interest in psychiatry and psychopharmacology. And then I sort of grew up in the tail end of the 60s as a youth. And of course, uh, I knew many people that took psychedelics and some people had good experiences. I remember one one person in particular, my sister's boyfriend, had a uh, had a bad experience and ended up in a state mental institution for several months. Oh man! Uh, probably, you know, my guess is in retrospect, he probably had uh, underlying mental illness, probably schizophrenia, and he was sort of tipped over the edge with um, with LSD. And and so then I, you know, I went to college. And, you know, had this interest, I was pretty much determined to be a psychiatrist and to understand how psychoactive drugs worked. And I was introduced to the concept of a receptor, which is the, these are the proteins on cells, which mediate the effects of various drugs, and decided I needed to study the receptors for psychoactive drugs, including uh, psychedelics. And I've been, you know, doing it ever since. So you're, you've been studying the receptors of psychedelic drugs. So for LSD or for mushrooms, did you focus on one or the other? Or did you look at also, you know, cannabinoids? Uh, what, what kind of drugs have you studied in the receptors? So we've studied all psycho, all known psychoactive drugs. I run this center for the NIH, the National Institute of Mental Health Psychoactive Drug Screening Program. And, uh, you know, every year we'll we'll look at thousands of potential psychoactive drugs that are, you know, sent to us by various investigators around the world. So we've probably studied everything you've ever heard of and hundreds of psychoactive drugs you have never heard of. Um, So we study them all. My personal interest is in psychedelics uh, in particular and uh, antipsychotic drugs, but uh, the lab studies basically everything. I have a, a huge lab. There are about 30 people in the lab right now. 
And because of this, we have resources really to study, um, you know, many, many different types of psychoactive compounds. What does it mean when a drug is psychoactive versus psychedelic? So psychedelics, so psychoactive is just sort of the general term, sort of an umbrella term for drugs that affect sort of people's perception of reality or how they feel about things or their internal feeling states. And of these, there are, there are drugs that are hallucinogenic. And these include psychedelic drugs, as well as drugs like salvia, ibogaine, amanita, which is a, a type of mushroom. Uh, amanita muscaria. Amanita muscara, datura, you know, and so on. Marijuana or cannabis typically doesn't cause a hallucinatory experience, although, you know, at very high doses, some people may have hallucinations of various types when, you know, when they close their eyes. Um, so we consider psychedelics to be a subclass of hallucinogenic drugs. And then hallucinogens are a subclass of psychoactive drugs. So psychoactive drugs would, would include stimulants like uh, cocaine and amphetamine, opioids, cannabinoids, drugs like MDMA, and so on. So what do, what do a lot of the psychoactive or psychedelic drugs have in common? And then what are some of the differences? I know it's a very broad question, but yeah. is there just a few items that are of intrigue that are in common and then that are different? Yeah, so let's let's just focus on psychedelic drugs. So psychedelic drugs in particular have their action in the human brain by interacting with a single serotonin receptor. Serotonin, of course, is a neurotransmitter in the brain and elsewhere, which is responsible for you know, regulating emotion, cognition, perception, and so on. Drugs like uh, serotonin selective reuptake inhibitors, Prozac, Zoloft, and so on, enhance serotonin uh, levels in the brain and, and apparently are effective in treating depression. So psychedelic drugs interact with one particular serotonin receptor. Just for the sake of completeness, there are 14 different serotonin receptors in the brain. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and psychedelics mediate their effects through one of them. It's called the 5-HT2A serotonin receptor. <laughs> oh, oh, quick quick question. Um, so since there's 14 different receptors for serotonin, is it all the same form? Like, does serotonin have chirality or handedness? And are there different forms of it that go into the receptors? Nope. Serotonin, serotonin is just serotonin. It's, it's a non-enantiomeric substance, and it, it interacts with all the receptors more or less uh, in the same way. Okay. All right. We'll keep going, please. Yeah. So the 5-HT2A receptor is the site of action of psychedelic drugs like LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, DMT, and so on. And the best data for the action of psychedelic drugs being mediated from the, by this receptor come from human studies. So there were studies done by Franz Bollenweider's group in the 1980s and early 1990s. And he's a investigator in Switzerland. And one sort of interesting nugget of information about Switzerland is they never outlawed psychedelics. So drugs like LSD and psilocybin are legal for psychiatrists to use for treating their patients with psychedelic psychotherapy. So really, I thought yeah. there was a break of like 40 years where no one could. Yeah, except in Switzerland. <laughs> oh, OK. okay. Yeah. yeah. So everywhere else it was illegal. But in Switzerland, sort of under you know, carefully supervised conditions, the drugs can be administered for therapeutic or for uh, experimental purposes. Did, and did so, uh, Switzerland have any good data over the decades that helped reignite the interest in the use of, of psychedelics here in the U.S.? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I'll, I'll just summarize that. So 
what uh, Franz Vollenweider's group showed sort of very definitively uh, by pre-treating humans with a, with a drug that blocks 5-HT2A receptors. What they found is that when humans were pre-treated with this drug, it's called catanserin, essentially all of the psychedelic effects of LSD and psilocybin were completely blocked. So people, basically, they pre-treated people with catanserin and then gave them LSD, a pretty pretty big dose of LSD or psilocybin, basically no effect. So that, that I would say, is the best evidence we have that the psychedelic wow. effects are mediated through this one receptor. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700-plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000-plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. Were there no effects? Were there just weren't psychedelic effects? But did people still... You know, I know like some psychedelics, they help people with existential crisis. Um, they help them with a terminal illness to be more comfortable. So right. were those effects still in play or, or just the so psychedelics? Yeah, so we don't know if the therapeutic effects were blocked because no one has done those studies yet. But given the first-person accounts of many people who have you know, taken psychedelic drugs for their therapeutic purposes, they all you know, virtually all of them acknowledge that the psychedelic experience was integral to their ultimate therapeutic effect. So I, I would suspect that the therapeutic actions would be blocked, but we don't have any definitive data on that right now. Was, um, you know, I'm sure you probably know Michael Pollan, and he did the, a recent right. book on, you know, some of the drugs that he's taking and the effects. Did that, do you think that helped the cause and the research or it did nothing or did it hinder anything or what was his uh, role? One thing, so it hasn't, I would say it hasn't affected the landscape sort of scientific research at all. One effect it has had, though, is it's really ignited the interest of lots of people around the world in psychedelic drugs. So even relatives I have that I meet, you know, I just met casually recently were extolling the virtues of psilocybin to me based on their reading of Michael Pollan's book. So. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. But I, so it's had like I a think, cultural effect. Yeah. yeah, it's had a huge cultural effect. And I suspect, you know, it has encouraged many people to experiment with psychedelic drugs, although I don't, you know, I don't have any data on that, just sort of anecdotal information. But it hasn't, other than sort of raising the public awareness of psychedelics, it hasn't really had much, much effect at a regulatory level or at a scientific level. But it, it makes interesting reading, right? Okay. Yeah, it does. So um, now that this receptor has been identified that blocks the psychedelic effects of drugs, is that is that now dovetailed into your research? Are you trying to explore what the implications are of this or what you're yeah, about? Yeah. So I've been studying this receptor since 1983. So maybe even longer than you've been alive, certainly longer than your canine companions have been alive. Right. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, interesting, I would say, interestingly enough, for many years, there wasn't a great deal of interest in psychedelic drugs or their receptors. So I was one of the, you know, three or four labs in the world that was interested in this topic. 
but over the years, you know, we published a lot of information about 5-HT2 receptors and sort of related receptors to gain an insight into the actions of psychedelic drugs at the molecular and atomic level. So what are you trying to figure out with your research now? What questions are you that's working on answering? So the big question that we're trying to address is how is it that psychedelic drugs mediate their apparent therapeutic actions and how is it that they mediate their psychedelic effects? And ultimately whether these could be, whether these are sort of inextricably linked or whether they could be decoupled. So we're, you know, we still don't understand why, how it is that a drug like LSD has these profound effects on human consciousness. It's sort of a big unanswered question. And a lot of the work in my lab and other labs is devoted to understanding you know, what the heck is going on in the brain and in, in neurons in the brain and so on. We still don't know. Oh, well, what, what kind of picture have you developed? I mean, with so many decades of research, I'm sure there's something known, right? Yeah. So we know a lot about the initial events. So my lab achieved sort of a breakthrough in the field probably four or five years ago when we were able to obtain the structure of the 5-HT2A receptor complex with uh, LSD and other psychedelic drugs. And that work took uh, several, sadly, several decades to <laughs> to achieve. It was uh, technically extremely difficult to do, but ultimately uh, those were, you know, those were published. So we we now have a, a really good idea at the atomic level how psychedelic drugs uh, interact with their receptors and how they activate the receptors. And then over the years, my lab has, uh, has clarified what the next events are basically inside the cell. Um, there are various uh, biochemical reactions that psychedelic drugs then turn on by activating the receptor. And uh, what we're trying to find out now is which of those various biochemical effects of psychedelics are ultimately responsible for the psychedelic effects and the therapeutic responses. We noted uh, some years ago now, I think 13 years ago, actually, that psychedelic drugs rapidly induce neuroplasticity. So they, they enhance the formation of synaptic connections between neurons. And they do this very rapidly. So within 30 minutes in a, in a cell culture dish. And recent work from Alex Kwan's lab has shown that at least in mice, uh, a single dose of psilocybin causes these synaptic changes to be maintained for at least a month, which is a long time in a mouse. And this, this corresponds to, to some degree to the prolonged therapeutic actions of psychedelic drugs. So we know that drugs like psilocybin given as, as either one dose or two doses apparently are effective for treating depression for up to a, up to a year. And uh, we currently think that these effects are mediated by the neuroplastic effects of, of, psych of psychedelic drugs. And of course, since that initial discovery, you know, 13 years ago, there have been many, many studies now since then expanding and um, validating those findings. We still don't know how, how this enhanced plasticity leads to the therapeutic effect. And the big question is whether this plasticity can be induced by drugs that are not psychedelic, because then they would have the potential of, of treating many, many more patients than, than currently would, would be eligible for psychedelic therapy. Well, what happens when um, you take a psychedelic and it attaches to the appropriate receptors? What, what causes hallucinations? What causes these, you know, the neuroplasticity and these feelings of being out of reality and you know, all this craziness yeah. that goes along with it? 
Yeah, so I, I can tell you what we think is going on. I can tell you our current hypothesis. So what we know is that psychedelic, the receptor for psychedelic drugs are located on a particular type of cell in the brain. They're technically called layer five pyramidal neurons. And these neurons sit in a very privileged part of the brain. So they mediate the sort of integration information from multiple sites in the brain to ultimately give us our perspective of reality. So you can you can think of them as, as filters or mediators of ult our ultimate perception of reality. And what psychedelic drugs do is they cause these neurons to fire in a very disorganized fashion. So essentially what the psychedelic drugs are is they're injecting noise in the system that tells us what, what reality is basically. And so this noise is then interpreted by the brain, the brain likes to make up stories, is interpreted by the brain as the psychedelic experience. And of course, uh, everybody is unique. So they have, you know, every person has their own uh, psychedelic experience. But we think that, that the initial step is basically this induction of noise in the system that's responsible for giving us our perspective of reality. And, okay. and the, the pathways that cause this enhanced synaptic plasticity are to some extent shared with the pathways that cause psychedelic drugs to have their psychedelic actions and in some respects are distinct. And so one of the hypotheses we're testing is whether we can target drugs to activate these alternative pathways that might have a lower uh, susceptibility of causing a psychedelic experience and a greater susceptibility of having a therapeutic response. Mm, okay, yeah, they strip away some of maybe the intense psychedelic you know, effects, which can be very dramatic and, you know, keep the therapeutic ones. That sounds ideal to make it yeah. uh, easier and more palatable, you know? Yeah. Um, and have you looked much at ketamine? Um, supposedly there is, I guess, some psychedelic effect from it. You yeah. Know, I know so it's kind of, so we, we've, we've examined ketamine basically as a comparator. So just, just by way of background, uh, in addition to being a biochemist, I'm also a psychiatrist. And so ketamine is, I can tell you a few things about ketamine. So ketamine is you know, is, an, is has been demonstrated to be an effective antidepressant uh, that has that is rapidly acting, very similar to psilocybin. The difference between uh, ketamine and the classical psychedelics is that the, the antidepressant effects of ketamine are relatively short-lived. So people that are taking ketamine for antidepressant effects usually have to take uh, a dose of ketamine every couple of weeks. And the uh, the doses of ketamine they give are are relatively low, so they don't they don't induce a sort of ketamine experience that people might people who have taken ketamine and at, at clubs or raves or whatever might be familiar with. The doses are are quite a bit lower than that, and they're just on the threshold of being psychoactive. So, I think most people will say they feel a little different um, when they take ketamine, but they don't have a full blown ketamine experience. And because oh, I know there's places that do like infusions and I think they do right. maybe a hundred milligrams of it over like an hour period. And some of the anecdotal you know, reports is used to be like, uh, people do kind of go off into another dimension in a way. It's like very dreamy and, and weird yeah. and subtly psychedelic or softly yeah, not, psychedelic. Yeah. So not everybody is infused with that large of a dose of caffeine. <laughs> Yeah, and I, there's, the therapy there's, is that typical, or what's a typical dose in therapeutic setting? So the patients I've I've talked to basically have sort of a a very mild ketamine experience. Um, 
And usually they're taking S-ketamine, which is the, you know, enantiomer of the biologically inactive, biologically active enantiomer of ketamine. And S-ketamine, of course, is approved for, for use as a, you know, a nasal form, basically, with, you know, sort of very mild psychoactive effects. But, you know, it's, you know, what you say is, is probably true. There are, you know, probably lots of, lots of people that, you know, differ in their responses to ketamine and have sort of a mild or moderate ketamine experience. But I would say the clinical trial data with S-ketamine would suggest that uh, you can give basically a sub-threshold dose of S-ketamine and still have a, a very good antidepressant effect. I would say related to that, there there is a new antidepressant that was just approved, which is a combination of bupropion and dextromethorphan. So dextromethorphan is the active ingredient of cough syrup. Of course, people abuse cough syrup for mm, yeah, robo, robo-tripping, right? Robo-tripping. So dextromethorphan is like ketamine and NMDA receptor antagonist, but the data is that sort of non-psychoactive or minimally psychoactive doses of dextromethorphan apparently are effective in treating depression as well. So I would say all of this data suggests it might it might be possible to separate the therapeutic actions from the from the psychoactive actions, although you know we don't know for sure. Mm. Yeah, why do you think that hasn't been studied for so many decades when it, while it's been in use? The main reason is that we didn't know that psychedelic drugs were effective therapeutics until about five years ago. So the first really controlled clinical trials with psilocybin were not published until 2016. And despite the fact that you know people had experimented with them for decades and there you know there were study for decades there really was no data that no i would say no well controlled data that that these compounds had any therapeutic efficacy at all but the the studies by Roland Griffiths and the studies from the NYU group uh, that were sort of published simultaneously in 2016 really astounded a lot of us so the antidepressant effects were you know more robust than anything we'd ever seen uh, they were more rapid than anything we'd ever seen, and they were maintained better than anything we'd ever seen. So it really changed dramatically our perspective of the potential utility of, psych- of psychedelic drugs. And, you know, despite this enthusiasm, there still was not a lot of research in psychedelic drugs. So there still are not that many people that study them. So, and and we actually didn't get interested in this notion until just a couple of years ago when we when we finally had some compounds we could test. Um, so it wasn't certainly wasn't anything on my radar either until a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, have you ever heard of or looked at uh, devil's breath? I think it's scopolamine. Yeah, scopolamine. Yeah. It's a scary one. Yeah, it's a it's it's um you know it has effects similar to belladonna alkaloids or you know amanita or datura. It's a cholinergic medication. Interesting scopalamine, which, you know, has psycho, clearly has psychoactive effects, also has been shown to be effective in treating depression in controlled trials. So we have this situation now where we have three, three classes of hallucinogenic drugs, basically psychedelics, uh, dissociative anesthetics like ketamine and, and other NNDA antagonists, and uh, cholinergic agents like scopalamine. All of them have in common this induction of an altered state of the mind, and they also induce synaptic plasticity. This synaptic plasticity is something that's characteristic of all of them. That's why we're thinking that, 
it might be possible to tune out the psychoactive effects, but as I said, we don't know for sure. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, microdosing any of these substances? That seems popular nowadays, and I don't know if it's good, bad, or ugly. What have you seen? So there's no data that psycho that microdosing is effective for anything. So we don't have any data that's, that it's effective. There is some reason to suspect that microdosing may not be the best thing. And that's because affects psychedelic drugs at a related serotonin receptor called the 5-HT2B receptor. So the 5-HT2B receptor is found in, in heart and in the heart valves. And what we know is that drugs that activate this receptor when taken repeatedly can cause life-threatening valvular heart disease. So this was something my lab discovered in 2000. We identified a number of FDA-approved drugs that were on the market that activate this receptor and cause valvular heart disease. And uh, those have all been removed from the market because of that as a side effect. And one of the problems with psychedelic drugs is all of them activate this receptor. So if you're taking them repeatedly over a, you know, an extended period of time, as you might with microdosing, then you run the risk of, of having valvular heart disease. And one of the things that's particularly worrisome is that among, uh, in, the, in the clinical trial data, among patients that were taking these drugs that induce valvular heart disease, 30% of them had clinically significant valvular heart disease after taking these uh, medications for about a year or so. It's a big concern I have. I've been trying to alert people to this possibility. Mm. I, for that reason, I wouldn't recommend it until we have better information on safety and efficacy. Um, it's possible you could do yourself some serious damage. Well, good to know, yeah. Yeah, psychedelic drugs also activate a related receptor called the 5-HT2C receptor. And a drug that does that uh, was recently withdrawn from by the FDA because of association with increased risk of cancer. So we have two other targets of psychedelic drugs that basically all these drugs interact with at essentially the same potency that that are, are can be associated with pretty severe medical consequences. So that's why I'm not a you know not a huge fan of microdosing at present. Uh, okay. You know, basically the bottom line is we don't know if it's helpful at all. There's no data. And the other thing is it might be bad for you. <laughs> so I wouldn't recommend it. In the community that you're in, do do people ask Oh, have you done this before? Have you tried that before? Do people say, like, you know, the culture of the people that you're around, the researchers and everyone, because of what you study, how does that interplay with what you do? Is it open, closed? Like, what do people say? So the rule in my lab is that uh, all the drugs go in the test tubes, uh, basically. So psychedelic drugs are schedule one compounds. I have a special license from the drug enforcement agency to to have them in my lab. And they're basically kept in a safe in a locked room. And I don't have the key to the safe, to the key to the room or the or the combination to the safe. So, you know, I can't get in them. And and basically no one in my lab can access them except for one person who is highly trustworthy. So uh, we don't, in, I don't encourage anybody to take these uh, drugs except under carefully, you know, except under carefully controlled experimental conditions. The you know, with a therapist, I live, I live part-time now in Oregon and psilocybin is now legal in Oregon, but they haven't, you know, they haven't rolled out uh, the treatment centers yet. So until they do that, you know, I'm not, I'm not recommending that anyone, you know, anyone take these drugs casually. That's, that's sort of my, my standard uh, remark. Um, okay. Makes some sense. people, 
Yeah, some people will ask me, you know, how can you study psychedelic drugs if you don't take them yourself? And I say, well, how can you study cancer if you don't have cancer, right? So it is possible to study psychedelic drugs and not take them. Yeah, I just wonder, you know, I'm not saying the stuff in the lab that you or anyone would take, but in this community of people, do, do researchers tend to take them, I guess, because they work with them and they become maybe intensely curious about them? Or is it that I would, say, I would say typically what I hear is that people have already taken them and they had a profound experience and then they got really interested in what the heck was going on. This is, this is sort of the typical entryway. So I'll, I'll just give you a, an example here. So I was approached about a year ago by a venture capital firm. I won't, I won't mention who they were and met with one of the principals of the firm who had previously been in the, I guess, hedge fund arena. So he, you know, made his billion dollars in hedge funds. And this was a gentleman who suffered from severe cluster headaches. So cluster headaches are a type of extremely painful headache that is basically resistant to all treatment. And, you know, this person was of considerable means. So he was able to see the very, very best headache doctors in the world. And none of them could do anything for him. And one of them recommended that he try magic mushrooms. And he did. And his cluster headaches disappeared. And, and he had other colleagues in the equity markets who had similar experiences. You know, for example, obsessive compulsive disorder, depression, and so on. They had these remarkable transformations. And so... You know, they decided that they wanted to start companies looking into this space. So I would say this is the typical way that people get interested in the field. I get I get emails from prospective students, you know, several emails a day, basically, uh, who want to work in my lab because they have experienced psychedelics and have, you know, have experienced the transformative, you know, effects of these. And they want to know what the heck is going on. Um, so I think it's more that than you know, you study psychedelics and you might be tempted to take take some. <laughs> They're so readily available out there in the world that, you know, not a problem. Okay. And just a few more questions. When when people take uh, these psychedelics, I know sometimes they'll have a divine experience. You know, I, right. I know it varies. It's not just one, one apparition or one, you know, assessment of God. But um, what have you noticed? Has anyone looked at how that correlates to binding to receptors or how that correlates to any changes in the experience versus people just having a, a therapeutic experience without that? What we know is that, so there's a beautiful study that was published by a group in Denmark where they correlated the degree binding of psilocybin to the receptor in the brain. In humans, in humans, in real time, they correlated that with the degree of the mystical experience. And what they found was the higher the occupancy of the receptors, the greater the degree of the mystical experience. So there's a direct correlation between how much drug is hitting the receptor and how big of an effect you have. Hmm. Is there... Um, not not uh, surprisingly, that's sort of what you would expect, uh, basic pharmacologic principles, but nice to know. Is there, I mean, has anyone established like a, a, a divine or a God threshold? You know, if uh, this much of the receptors are bound, then it's very likely that you're going to have an experience like this? No, no. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. We call in, in, in the lab, we call this a cosmic experience rather than a godlike experience. Okay, right, fair but enough. But it's, it's typically, else? typically with larger doses. Hmm. Okay. Are there certain drugs that are more predisposed to give someone an experience like that? Well, psychedelics are, of course. Um, I mean, amongst the psychedelics, is there like a king of, king of the cosmos experience for you know, DMT or 
you know, which of them, I don't know, seems to most reliably get people there for most often. Yeah, that's that's a that's a good question. You know, I don't know from personal experience what I what I know from reading, you know, reading firsthand accounts is that these these ultra short acting drugs like DMT, 5-methoxy DMT cause, you know, a quite a different experience. So um, the late Terrence McKenna would talk about these multidimensional machine elves that uh, that he would see when he smoked DMT. And uh, these are not these are not things that that are typically reported when people take uh, psilocybin or LSD. But beyond that, I don't know. Okay. Are there any um, any psychedelics that don't fit within one of these three binding regimes? Um, yeah, they're just kind of off in their own category and maybe not studied well. There are hundreds of psychedelic molecules. So Alexander Shulgin, you know, published the structures of these in, in a couple of books that he published years ago, one on tryptamines, the other on phenylisopropylamines. So there are vast numbers of these and even more since then. You know, many of them are qualitatively the same. Some are some are different. We don't, you know, we don't know why some are different than others. There are drugs that are hallucinogenic that are really, really interesting to me that are sort of understudied. The big one is sort of ibogaine, which causes, you know, this very intense uh, hallucinatory experience and apparently, uh, you know, is a very effective for uh, treating people who have uh, heroin addiction. So there are, you know, there are actually uh, ibogaine clinics in Canada and Amsterdam and elsewhere, where people who are heroin addicts can come in, they, you know, take their ibogaine experience under medical supervision. And, you know, a large percentage of them then no longer have craving for opioids. And, you know, we don't have any idea how that that works. Very interesting. Yeah. And, and the duration, I guess ibogaine is like the longest, it's like 30 hours or something. And yeah. uh, psilocybin is what, four or five? And four to six. What, yeah. What, what correlates with the duration of the effect? No one has studied that, actually. It's a, it's a really good question. We don't know. So there are you know, a number of companies that are trying to look at these ultra-short-acting psychedelics like DMT and 5-methoxy-DMT. We don't know if they're going to be therapeutic at all. They may or may not be. So we just don't know. But it's a great question. Has any, uh, has any crazy person tried to do a little bit of all three of the types of um, psychedelics that you discussed? You know, like cholinogenic and the other ones i'm sure if you go to arrowwood you can find somebody that's done this <laughs> right. but i don't i don't know anyone that has or live to tell the tale yeah and live to tell the tale but i'm sure so arrowwood has these trip reports you know the caveat is you don't really know what the person took uh unless they got it from a chemical supply house but there are reports of people taking you know salvia plus lsd ibogaine plus lsd you know ketamine plus lsd and so on so yeah, I'm it's sure, probably really, I'm sure really there is there's probably one or two reports of people taking ketamine, psilocybin, and ibogaine all at the same time. <laughs> I wouldn't uh, recommend yeah. it. Yeah, actually, now that we're talking about it, I'm like, uh, yeah, that sounds like a really bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> well, very good. Um, Brian, what do you think is going to be possible? I mean, you've been in this game a long time, decades, so I, I'm sure you're not in a rush or anything, but what, what do you think is possible, let's say, in the short term, in the next five years with psychedelics versus stuff that's going to take decades, you think more? Yeah, I think, you know, we're all eagerly awaiting the uh, large clinical trials with psilocybin. And if those are positive, so I expect, I suspect they will be positive. That's my expectation. If I was a betting man, I would bet that they're going to be positive, although I don't know what sort of odds I would give you. But if those are, you know, assuming those are positive, we'll get the readout of those in, in a year or two. 
then by definition, psilocybin is no longer a schedule one drug because it now has clinical utility. So that will cause at least psilocybin to be descheduled and to be available as a prescription medication. So I think that's, you know, that's going to happen easily within five years. What we're seeing that's happening more organically is uh, states and municipalities are legalizing psychedelics for therapeutic purposes. So we're going to have a lot of anecdotal data from basically consumers out there who are, you know, who are accessing it. Um, and, you know, in the U.S., we're going to start getting that data next year because Oregon, Oregon will be the first state to sort of roll this out. So I, I think in the near term, we're going to see two things. We're going to see a lot of a lot of areas of the country where these will be decriminalized. And even in very conservative uh, states like Texas and Florida, they are, you know, the, the legislatures have voted to approve funding for studies investigating the role of, of psychedelic drugs for treating post-traumatic stress disorder in veterans. So, um, you know, interestingly, this is an area that doesn't have a blue and red divide. I think everybody agrees that serious mental illnesses are way undertreated. And, you know, there are many populations in the U.S., including veterans, that, you know, are, are currently underserved. And these, these, these drugs could be transformative medications. And I think, I think that's what we're going to see in the short term. In terms of, you know, non-psychedelic, psychedelic drugs, we hope to, in the next couple of years, to get the first human studies from those. And, and we'll know immediately when they're given to humans, whether they're psychedelic or not, and then it will take some time to determine if they actually are have therapeutic actions. Okay, very good. Well, Brian, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Just go to my website at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Roth Lab. I think if you just type Roth Lab into Wikipedia or into Google or Brian Roth into Google, you'll, you'll find me. I'll be the first person that pops up. I have a Wikipedia page as well, so you can get me that way. And I'm always happy to answer questions. I get, you know, as you might guess, questions every day from people about various things. I hopefully can help them out. Yeah, for sure. Just yeah. the last thing I'd like to I'd like to mention, just two things. My work sure. on psychedelic drugs, there's a huge group of people in my lab and other labs that we collaborate with that are working on this. So I like to tell people that I am just the spokesperson or the talking head. The other thing is all all my work is funded by the US government either by the NIH or by DARPA. And we're very thankful to them for their uh, support of our work. Okay, excellent. Well, Brian, it's been a great call. And again, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate yeah, it. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.